Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my brand new spacious studios at the University of Notre Dame and sitting across from me in his beautiful home studio in Portland, Oregon, is my brother in Christ, my beloved radio partner, thanks to the grace of God and the leave of the good people of Modern Day Radio, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. Hello, Ken. How are you doing today, my friend? I am fantastic. It's uh, school's back in session. Football is back in session on Saturdays, you know, college football. So all sorts of things, just uh, just looking up in the world. All right. Awesome, man. Awesome. <laughs> You're looking good. Although our our uh, radio family cannot see you. <laughs> you know, that's... Just take my word for it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's one of the beauties of, uh, of radio is that uh, it's all the joy and uh, none of the distraction of the flesh, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, what's been the good word of late? Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing something special. I'm hosting a speaking tour for three Australian speakers. They're coming um, to you this time. Yeah, see, I, they, I always go to them. I've been to Australia eight times on tour. And I, see, I said, you know what? That's not fair. They should come over here. <laughs> and so uh, we've entitled the, the, uh, the, the tour Awake, Not Woke. Okay. And uh, we have three Australian speakers, Charbel Raish who is director of Perusia Media over there. Uh, it's uh, the largest Catholic uh, apologetic and evangelization organization in Australia. Uh, they have, uh, they're in about 113, 114 different countries. Charbel and I have personally been to 10 countries together Wow! on, on tour speaking and introducing people to the work of Perusia. He's given a talk from Islam to Christ. So he, was, he grew up a Maronite Catholic and briefly converted to Islam and then found his way back to the faith. Wow. And so he's going to share his story. And then we have Kevin Bailey. Kevin is a he's, a, he's probably, he's a really interesting guy, actually. <laughs> he was a member of the Special Forces in Australia. He was a member of the Olympic ski team uh, back in the day. Yep. Wow. And he's also a, a philanthropist. He's a, he was uh, very successful in the financial world and um, does a, a ton of different work supporting Catholic organizations in Australia. He's going to be talking about about his journey from financial success to having success in the faith, you know, which is, which for him is much more important. Yeah. You know, the uh, third speaker is Robert Haddad. Robert is like the Tim Staples of Australia. Okay. He's written a ton of books. Um, in fact, people, some people here in the States have heard of him before. He's uh, all these, all these three guys, by the way, have been on Catholic answers and EWTM before. Uh, so some people may recognize them, but Robert's fantastic. He's going to talk about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, I told them that for the, this, we're in the second of three years of the U.S. bishop's emphasis on Christ's presence in the Eucharist and, and kind of bringing Eucharistic theology back again and adoration and all of that. So he's going to focus his talk on that. So, yeah, so awake, not what we're not going to be talking about any kind of, you know, like the election or anything, anything crazy like that. Right. But we're going to talk about um, how to get the move into deeper intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Fantastic. So I'm really excited. So we're going to be in Orange County, San Diego, um, St. Louis, uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and Dallas, Texas. Wonderful. 
You're getting close, but you need to just keep coming slightly farther east so that you can come to beautiful South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the, probably the next tour, that's what that's what we'll do. There you go. And uh, we'll hopefully we can even have you arrange for us to come to a parish in South Bend. There's no cost to the parish, by the way. All this is being paid with sponsorships. Oh, wonderful. So there's no cost to the parish at all. All we ask is that you just host us and you know, the parish doesn't need to do anything. So give us a space. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Coffee's cool. going at the D. Nicholas Center. Things are good. Yeah. Our students are back. We're uh, in the midst of our, you know, programming and things like that. We're, we're actually preparing to take a fantastic pilgrimage. Uh, it's, it's now kind of out there with the, with the students, but we're working on uh, a pilgrimage to uh, England for spring break. And so we're going to take a group of students and we're going to kind of trace the faith. And it's really kind of awesome because tonight you and I are going to talk about uh, one, the whole reason that England is actually Christian at all and was. Uh, it all has to do with a, a great pope from the uh, 7th century, well, late 6th, early 7th century. And so um, so I'm really excited to trace some of those steps uh, with the students uh, this uh, coming year in England. And over the summer, we moved into new offices at the the Nicola Center. So we're now uh, in a, a new building. And that's like I said, you know, I now have a space here where I can do recording and, and uh, record podcasts and conversations and do video and things like that as well. So pretty exciting time at the Nicola Center at Notre Dame. So a lot of fun. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, yeah that's the one thing I miss the uh, being around students when we, when we work together at the University of Portland, you know, the, the yeah. energy and the uh, optimism and, the you know, just the, that specialness of students. As they discover themselves and their relationship with God and kind of being part of all that was really special. So, yeah, um, and that's awesome. You can still get to be part of that. Yeah, it's you know, that's one of the things I think I enjoy most about academic life is the the rhythm of the year. You know, August, September is a time of uh, everybody getting ready and anticipation for the year to begin. And everybody arrives and, you know, you have your, of course, your first year students, your freshmen that are just excited because it's their first time ever, you know, uh, perhaps living away from home and discovering and kind of the, the freedoms and the responsibilities and the duties that come with that. And then, of course, the year goes, you have the break times, you have both fall break and Christmas break and spring break, these sorts of things. But and then the sense of accomplishment that comes at the end of April and May, you know, along with all the stress, of course, as people are writing their papers and taking exams. But there is a real rhythm to the year that I just genuinely love working in academia, especially at a place like Notre Dame, where the faith is so much a part of our lives. You know, it's Catholic University. For all the times people say, is Notre Dame really Catholic? The answer is yes, absolutely. It's a fantastic place. And you certainly know this, Deacon. You know, it's it's a place where it's easy to be Catholic. And, and it's fantastic to be able to pray together and to have you know, the sacred heart of Jesus is at the heart of the campus. You know, the Blessed Mother stands atop the dome and she's being regilded right now, actually, you know, so she'll be even brighter and more beautiful than ever. But she looks down upon the statue of the sacred heart of Jesus, who is holding his arms out and saying, Venite ad me omnes, come, all of you, come to me, you know, come to me, all of you. And uh, it's just, it's the heart of, of uh, what this project is about, is bringing people to Christ. And uh, that's what our conversations are about each week, too, here on Living Stones, right? Where we that's get right. to have this fantastic conversation about the joy of being Catholic and to show the reasonableness 
of our faith, to show that God created us in his own image and likeness, and that includes the great gift of reason. God is, uh, you know, the chief scientist, right? God is the one who creates knowledge. Knowledge is sciencia. Science is Latin for knowledge and uh, learning, and it's just fantastic. So I love being here. Fantastic. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been discussing uh, the great fathers and doctors of the church. And uh, tonight we're going to introduce, as I mentioned before, we're going to introduce a pope from the 6th century, elected in 590 as pope, who reigned until 604. And he is one of the two popes who are officially named or officially called the Great. So we're tonight we're going to meet Gregory the Great, the very first pope who took the name Gregory. And as I say, there are only two who are officially called the Great. It's Gregory and Leo the Great, who uh, reigned uh, 440 to 461, so about uh, 140 years before uh, Gregory did. Of course, in common parlance, you and I both had the fantastic, you know, and blessed experience to know a pope who's been unofficially called the Great, John Paul the Great, Pope St. John Paul the Great. Um, but uh, it's not one of his official epithets yet uh, within the church. But we do call uh, Gregory and Leo the Great. Now, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, I think there's a third from uh, Nicholas the Great. There, uh, there is a, a Pope Nicholas, and I do think we actually call him the Great, but I don't know that it's... Like official? I don't know. Official I'm, title? Yeah. I'm going to have to go and yeah. look that up. You know what? We'll stick a pin in that, and we'll have uh, our fact checker, who is also me in this case, get back to you, uh, you know, uh, by next week. We'll figure it out. Or, of course, you could look it up while I'm while I'm thinking, too. So, yeah. <laughs> Nicholas, yeah. Uh, and, and I'd be interested to know the years of Nicholas. I, I mean, what's really interesting to me is that Leo, 440 to 461, who, of course, is very famous for having met with... Attila the Hun and driven him back and basically stopping him from uh, raiding the city of Rome is both the savior, quite literally the savior of the city of Rome in his time, but also as a doctor of the church because he wrote the great Tome of Leo, which uh, formed the basis of the teaching of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Gregory the Great is also a doctor of the church. Gregory, uh, did some of his uh, some of his writing against the Donatists, who continued to be a uh, influence and continued to be a bit of a heresy that was active in North Africa. The Donatists, of course, were also dealt with by the great Saint Augustine, whom uh, I believe you'll be introducing us to in uh, future weeks. So, um, but Gregory, just to give a little background, he's born in around 540. A.D., uh, into a Rome that had become a backwater burg due to being overrun by the Goths, the Franks, the Eastern Roman Empire, and and also affected by the plague. Uh, Gregory was, nevertheless, he was a proud Roman, and he was the scion of a, of a patrician family. His father had been the prefect of Rome, which is the highest civil office in the city, and uh, then was a senator, served the city as a senator. And the family lived in a villa on the Chalian Hill, which overlooked the Colosseum. 
as well as they owned estates in Sicily through his mother's family. So they were very well off. Uh, The family was also well connected to the church. His great-great-grandfather was Pope Felix III, who reigned 483 to 492, and he had another uncle uh, who was Pope Agapetus I, who was Pope 535 to 536. So his family had served the church and had produced uh, leaders in the church already. His own mother, Sylvia, was eventually herself canonized and is honored as a patron of pregnant women. So, uh, so Gregory comes from a holy family. He himself was well-educated and well-read and had the respect of his fellow citizens such that he was elected as prefect of Rome at the age of 33. So this, again, was the highest civil office. He was an accomplished uh, civil administrator. After his father died, Uh, and his mother entered into a cloistered monastery, Gregory converted his family villa in Rome into a Benedictine monastery that was dedicated to St. Andrew, the brother of Peter. Uh, And he himself then became a monk and entered the community uh, of the monastery of St. Andrew, which was, again, this was his childhood home, which had been converted into a monastery. And he treasured the contemplative life. He loved the monastic life of prayer and work, which he viewed as the, quote, ardent quest for the vision of our creator, end quote. So the life of the monk was to discover the life of God and to live in the life of God. Gregory loved this. This was, he felt he'd found his vocation. However, his retreat into the monastery was not meant to be. As in 579, the Pope, Pelagius II, called Gregory out of the cloister to be ordained a deacon and then sent him as an emissary to the imperial court in Constantinople with the charge of getting imperial support for the defense of Italy against the frequent invasions of the Lombards. Uh, So Gregory packed up obediently. Uh, He was ordained a deacon. He went to Constantinople um, and he spent about uh, five years there. By the time he got there, from 579, late 579 to 585. And unfortunately, his time as an emissary was pretty fruitless because the emperor had, the Byzantine emperor had decided he wasn't going to spend any more uh, resources uh, in defending the uh, ancient capital of the empire in Rome and defending Italy. So in 585, Gregory returned from his fruitless mission to his monastery in Rome, back to uh, the monastery of St. Andrew, where he again intended to live out his days according to the Benedictine rule. However, as we've seen so many times before, it was not meant to be. In 590, the Roman Church elected Gregory by popular acclamation to succeed the late Pope Pelagius II after the pontiff had died of the plague, which was once again spreading throughout Rome. And this is interesting. So Gregory was elected by popular acclamation. This is not a way that we elect popes now, but the people clamored for a leader whom they trusted. They had loved Pelagius, but they knew Gregory. They knew him as a holy man. They knew because, of course, he had served the city in a civil role as the uh, prefect of Rome. He had served the city as the prefect. Even though he was a monk, the people wanted him as their pope. They wanted him as their shepherd. And so um, he obediently, again, obedient in this case, not to the Pope, but obedient to the church itself. He uh, left the monastery and moved across the city to become the Pope. Now, even though he was at heart a monk, as Pope, he had a heart for the missionary work of the church. 
And in 596, he sent the prior of uh, the monastery of St. Andrew, who was a monk named Augustine, to lead a group of monks to the British Isles to preach the gospel to the Anglo-Saxons. Augustine of Canterbury is known to history now as the Apostle to the English, and his mission was so successful that England later sent its own missionaries to the Netherlands and to Germany. So, again, a mission, you know, a, a, an evangelized country had been so successfully evangelized that they themselves became evangelists. And according to a later story by the English historian the Venerable Bede, Gregory was said to have been inspired to send missionaries to the British Isles after he had encountered English boys at a slave market in Rome. And he said, they are not Angles but angels, if only they were Christian. And he never forgot that. And the legend is that he took that as his inspiration to remember them when he became in a position to have the authority to send missionaries. And so, um, so today, Gregory and Augustine together are greatly honored, remain greatly honored in the uh, English church uh, as the great apostles and missionaries who, who brought the faith to the British Isles. So that's kind of why I'm looking forward to being on pilgrimage in the uh, spring semester and getting a chance to actually visit Canterbury, where Augustine was buried. Now, of course, during the Reformation, Henry VIII destroyed so many of the uh, shrines. The original shrine of St. Augustine is now destroyed, but we know where he landed, and there's uh, been a reconstruction of a shrine there. So I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity to pray and to thank God for the great gift of the missionaries sent by Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great. So that's a little bit about his missionary mission. Yeah. Yeah, so a couple of things come to mind. First of all, this idea of obedience. I'm glad you said obedience, not reluctance, okay? Because obedience is one of the um, foundational principles of the rule of St. Benedict. Mm-hmm. It's about obedience. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Benedict spends a, a lot of time in the rule talking about obedience uh, because the abbot takes the place of Christ in the monastery. So he's like a, a father to them. And so when he was called out of the monastery, you know, he already had within him this understanding of what obedience is. And obedience, obedire, means to listen, but not just listen with your ears, but to listen with your heart, mm-hmm. right? Which I'm sure spoke volumes to Gregory at that point, because the, the first line of Rule of St. Benedict says, listen, my sons, to the master's precepts and incline the ear of your heart, right? Yeah. So yeah. so uh, that, that would have resonated very deeply with Gregory. But that's the first thing. The second thing is about this... Um, election by popular demand. You know, some people I'm sure are clamoring in the churches, why don't we do that today? You know, and we have to understand that when they elected popes this way, it was, um, you know, they, they had the right intention at heart. You know, sadly, over the years when, you know, as the, as the church grew in influence and, uh, and wealth, quite frankly, with lands and territories and works of art and things like that, people's, uh, ideas began to shift they wanted to elect someone who would follow a particular agenda and not have the overarching idea of protecting the church and serving the church as a as a spiritual father you know yeah. as as christ as christ's representative on earth i mean so that process was changed you know and, and I, I gosh i can imagine disaster of trying to uh, do that today <laughs> uh you know, we, well Gosh, we can with see the, even in I mean, regular democracy, right? I mean, it's a bit of a yeah, challenge. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, with all the politics and stuff going on in the church, in our world, 
you know, it, it's uh, it wouldn't be wouldn't be right, right? So, so now the Cardinals elect the new Pope, and it's interesting. Also, he was uh, elected Pope as a as a deacon, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he had to be ordained a priest and then a bishop. <laughs> you know, so, yep. Yeah. So that's that's the way they did it back then. But that's a um, it's a heck of a promotion all, all of a sudden. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think that shows the Holy Spirit was uh, showed the confidence in Gregory and his abilities to really lead the church at the right time in the right direction that it needed to go at that particular point in history. Yeah. And of course, the the one of the major contributions of Gregory is the biography of Saint Benedict. Right. I yeah. Mean, so exactly. I mean, uh, without Gregory, we don't get, you know, the what what was called the dialogues, which was a collection of four volumes of the lives of the saints of the of sixth century Italy. And the second volume is entirely devoted to the life of St. Benedict. And it's from there that we, you know, we get the famous stories and the famous images of, of Benedict meeting with his sister Scholastica and, and her praying, you know, for more time uh, to meet with him. And that's when the rainstorm comes. So, so much of what we think of as the popular uh, stories of the life of St. Benedict come from come from the pen of Gregory. And it's most important. Gregory is born in 540, which is the year that Benedict dies, right? Benedict lives 480 to 540, and, and Gregory lives then 540 to 604. So he knew people who literally had become monks under St. Benedict himself. And he so loved and, and admired that life that he converted his entire family wealth into a monastery for the Benedictine rule itself. So yeah, he was, uh, he's vitally important for Benedictines as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, to receive that title, the great, because remember, we got to, maybe people don't understand. He didn't call himself that. Right. No, <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, like... <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, Gregory was the first pope to use the title, the servant of the servants of God in his documents. Mm-hmm. That indicated that he viewed his role not as a uh, role of a monarch on high, but rather it emphasized his role of supporting the brothers, right? It's supporting the faithful as the risen Christ had commanded Peter to do, right? On the seashore after the resurrection, Christ asks Peter three times, do do you love me? And then he says, after you have converted, confirm your brethren, support your brothers, support the, the bishops, support the faithful, uh, because that's your job, Peter. And that's what Gregory really did. You know, we mentioned before, Gregory was a master of administration. He had proven his civil administration, uh, but he organized the resources of the church to provide charitable relief for the poor, starting there in his own home city, his own home diocese of Rome. He sent clergy and monks into the streets to take meals to those who couldn't feed themselves. And it was said very often that he would not dine until he was sure that the poor in the city had themselves been fed. Uh, And when he did dine, he would invite 12 guests to the table to dine with him. And this table we still have. You can visit this table of St. Gregory, this relic of St. Gregory's papacy, the table at which he would feed 12 disciples of the Lord with himself, you know, and uh, you can still visit that today. He said, the proof of love is in the working of love. Where love exists, it works great things. But when it ceases to act, love ceases to exist. See, he was all about charity to the poor. And this, of course, also comes directly out of the rule of St. Benedict, right? Treat all guests as Christ. This is what Gregory did. He was absolutely through and through a son of St. Benedict. 
No, there's no question about it. it had a, a tremendous influence, as we, if you said, on his on his papacy and how he carried out the papacy as well. And I, I, the people knew that. I mean, you have just a wonderful sense of someone who really gets it. Because Jesus, Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. So the model that he understood that was emphasized in the rule is that headship, leadership, and authority is rooted in service. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the key for husbands living in their family with their wife and children. That's for priests in the parish. You know, and really... Um, that's the model for all leadership, CEOs of large companies. Imagine if that was the way they thought about what they did. Yes, okay, you have to uh, take care of the shareholders and the bottom line, all that. You have to make sure you have a healthy uh, bottom line so that can, the company can continue to thrive and grow and develop new products and services and hire more people and create uh, more opportunities. Yes, but imagine you going with the attitude, I am a servant. And that is your, yes. And if you do that right, then you'll make money. See, yeah. not, it's the other way around. It's not the money first. I'm a servant first. And because I'm serving well, I'm able to provide for all the people that are under my care. My employee. They're not just widgets. They're not just tools or accessories. I mean, they're, they're people with lives, you know, that, that some of them have dedicated their lives to work for a particular company. So that's something that definitely needs to be taken into consideration. There are some companies that do that very well. You know, and there are other companies that that probably need to need to hear this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Gregory is a is a fantastic saint, and as you mentioned, the people knew his holiness such that he was actually uh, never formally canonized. He was acclaimed as a saint upon his death. Uh, he's buried in the um, Saint Peter's Basilica. His relics are kept uh, near the left transept of the church. Uh, you can go and I've been to Mass uh, on the feast of Saint Gregory the Great at the tomb of Gregory the Great. His feast day is a uh, September third. He died in March, but because his March March death date always falls during Lent. Uh, during the great calendar reform of Vatican II, they moved him to September so that he would always be able to be celebrated. He's venerated as one of the four great Western doctors of the church, along with St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome. Uh, he's patron of teachers and students, musicians and masons. Uh, and he's often depicted in art uh, as Pope with a, the triple, uh, you know, the triple tiara of the, the Pope. Um, and usually always with a bird nearby, which symbolized the Holy Spirit, who uh, the image that was was that the Holy Spirit would speak to him as he preached so that he, too, was proclaiming what what the Holy Spirit wanted the hearts of the faithful to hear. So there's so much more to say about Gregory, but unfortunately, we've run out of time this evening. Gregory the Great is is a fantastic saint that I wholeheartedly encourage you. And again, we just had his feast day a couple weeks ago. Gregory is. Uh, is, is a great saint to go to and, and it's somebody always to pray for. When I pray for the Pope, uh, you know, when I pray for Pope Francis, I always ask and invoke the prayers of St. Gregory the Great, who was himself a great administrator, a man of holiness, who wanted nothing but to make saints. And that's, uh, that's what we have to look forward to. So, Deacon, we've run out of time. But I do encourage all of our listeners to connect with us on Facebook. You can go to Living Stones Media, or you can always download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. Deacon, until we gather next week and we learn about another great doctor of the church, might we uh, have a blessing? Well, mighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. 
You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.